0: Thank you, brother. If you could turn in the Word of God, the First Thessalonians this morning. First Thessalonians chapter one, as we continue on in our study. Last Lord's Day for communion, we deviated to look at the Song of Solomon. So we return to our primary Lord's Day morning study today in First Thessalonians. And we're still in chapter one, and we're going to read from verse one. And let us all follow carefully in the Word of God. As we hear His precious Word, may it come with the help of the Spirit as the living Word that it is, and be received by faith in our hearts. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Sylvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Amen. We'll end our reading there at verse 7. And may again the Spirit of God apply the word even read in our hearing today with power to us. Will you still your heart momentarily in prayer, please, one more time. Lord, how we feel the words of the hymn writer resonate the need to be imprisoned within Thine arms, to be made captive to Thy will, to be brought under Thy dominion and willingly made to be servants of the Most High God. Deliver us from the folly of thinking we know better. Deliver us from taking an alternative course in the Christian life. Help us to die to sin to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Thee. For therein is the path of true joy and contentment. Thou art our Maker, our Creator, our God. Thou knowest our frame and how we truly come to experience the joys of our purpose that we were made to worship and serve Thee. Make us willing servants. Use the word today to those who are willing servants to encourage them, to those that are reluctant to teach them and subdue them, and to those that have absolutely no desire to serve Christ, O God, have mercy on them, that they may bow before Thy presence today, before they are forced to bow before Thy presence in eternity when it is too late. So fill me now with Thy Spirit and pour out the Holy Ghost upon us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had anyone walk into your life or come into your life and change it totally from what it once was or what direction it was going in? If you kind of throw your mind back, you may think of teachers that inspired you in a particular subject, and so you changed your opinion about that subject forever, and you thought, yes, this is what I want to study for the rest of my life. Or you met someone else that perhaps spiritually came into your life, pointed you to the Lord Jesus Christ, and by coming to understand those things for yourself, you were never the same again. You were saved. And every time you think about your testimony, this person comes into your mind, because they're an integral part in God's working in your life and bringing you to saving faith. What a difference people make in the lives of other people. One day, the Apostle Paul and his companions walked into Thessalonica, and lives in that city were going to be transformed and never be the same again. We saw from the opening language of this letter that he writes to them, Certain truths that show us just how this all came about. I think the most essential thing we pointed out was what we see in verse 4, where Paul says, Knowing brethren beloved, your election of God, or knowing brethren beloved of God, your election. Because you know that you're loved of God, know, you know that God has loved you and drawn you to Himself. You're aware of that. That truth is foundational in the transformation of any life in terms of the gospel. But there are things that must happen before we become aware of this. We don't inherently grow up in the world and know that there is a God in the sense of one who has come to be known by us. We may look and see, well, there's evidence of God all around us, but we don't know a saving God, a redeeming God, a loving God until it's communicated to us. And so another essential part in us coming to grasp the gospel is not only knowing, well, God loves sinners, that we are brethren beloved, that God has loved us, but it comes through instrumentality. It comes through men. And so the last time we spent our time looking at the opening part of verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says, "...for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance." So they didn't just see that God had a love for them. They also needed this message to be communicated to them. They don't just know it inherently. God uses means. And so Paul and his companions were essential in those in that city coming to grasp this truth that God loves sinners and has made provision for them. The Gospel came onto them. That's an essential part. There's a need for the practice of preaching. Preaching. The practice of evangelism where the gospel comes to men. And this is where you play a part as well as preachers and missionaries. The gospel must come to men. Those that you work with, those that you're burdened for, the gospel must come to them. If it doesn't come to them, they will never know that God loves them. They will never know that they can be saved. They will never know that there is a Savior who can forgive all their sins and draw them into peace. And the assurance that they're ready to meet their God. So it must be preached to them. But there is a power in true preaching. The gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. There's also a person in true preaching. Because the Holy Ghost is very much there assisting that work. And there's also a persuasion in true preaching. It comes in much assurance. The, the, The apostle here is testifying to the experience of what happened when he went there. That he experienced this. The Gospel wasn't just in Word only, but it came in power. You could see the evidence and the effect of that Word. The Holy Ghost evidently was then working. He was a part of that. The Word wasn't just spoken, but He is coming alongside the preacher, through the preacher, through the spoken Word, driving it into the hearts of men that it might be received with faith. And then the assurance, of which I think, As I said last time, I think this is more again on his side. The sense as he preaches, he was assured of the help of God. And he gained a sense of confidence that God is working with us. And he could turn to Silas and Timothy and say, The Lord is with us here. God is blessing our efforts. And they preached with a sense of assurance that God intended to plant a church in that place. Preaching is greatly opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil knows he cannot change God's mind toward his elect. He knows that. Those chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, that's something that is set, it is sealed. But he applies himself not in trying to change the mind of God, but to infiltrate the church to stop the message being proclaimed. And so he, he fears lest the light of the glorious gospel should come on to men. And so he endeavors to stop that by whatever means he can. You remember what was said when Paul was in Thessalonica that these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. And so they're transforming the world. Men, men, individuals walked into a city one day, proclaimed the message of the love of God in Christ to sinners. And it transformed them. And then there's a there's sense that there's that they're turning the world upside down. They're, they're changing the world by simply proclaiming the gospel. And so it's greatly opposed. Greatly opposed. The preacher is opposed. The Christian with a burden for others is opposed. And if there's one thing the devil would seek to do in this work internally, it is to rob us of the sense of burden and desire to preach Christ well, you're saved, you're in Christ now. There's not a whole lot He can do except discourage you, but you're on your way to heaven and that's for sure. But He will come in and try to stifle your labor, your work in propagating it and making others aware of the love that God has for men and women and boys and girls. Thomas Watson once said, the minister's work is to preach against men's sins, which are as dear to them as their right eye. And he cannot endure this. Every man's sin is his king, to which he yields love and subjection. And he went on to say, therefore Satan rise, or raises his militia, all the force and power of hell against the ministry. End quote. He raises all of his power against the ministry. He's focusing there, of course, on preachers. He gives attention to that and that particular writing that he has. But it's to us all. It is to us all. If you were once a zealous, evangelistic Christian seeking to win others, but that cannot be said of you today, He has gotten in there. He's gotten a foothold in your life. And as you carry on in the Christian life, as long as you do no damage in the lives of others, bringing them to Christ, He can be content with that. And sometimes I have known it myself that so long as I just plod along in the Christian life, there's almost a sense of deception that you can get where as long as you can say, well, I'm kind of, I'm," as we would say, keeping her between the hedges. That you're not going off course. You're not running into ditches in the Christian life. You're going in a straight path. And you can look at your life and say, well, I'm not making shipwreck. And I'm doing certain things that God had calls me to. And I'm living according to the law of God and so on and so forth. And you, you can be content with that. And and to some extent, I think I have experienced, and you may agree to this or not, but I think I have experienced that the devil almost takes the gas pedal off me if I'm in that place. But as soon as I begin to evangelize and to try and reach the lost, everything becomes more difficult. Living a holy life becomes more difficult every aspect of, of what God has called us to do becomes more difficult as you endeavor to actually reach others for Christ. There's none so opposed as those that are trying to dismantle Satan's kingdom by preaching Christ to sinners. And So certainly we are in His targets when we give ourselves to that. And so this experience here Of coming to this city and preaching the gospel was a tremendous one and and an encouraging one and an example for us. But it goes on. And what I want us to see here this morning are practical elements that extend the kingdom. Practical elements that extend the kingdom from the latter part of verse 5 through verse 7. Because there are other things. It's not just foundationally, God loves sinners, there can be no transformation anywhere. There can be no extension of the kingdom if this is not true. But then it must be preached and proclaimed, but there's more to it than that. And we read at the end of verse 5, As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. So as we consider these practical elements that extend the kingdom, note with me first of all the character of the preachers. The character of the preachers. We have seen the preachers in their work. Verse 5 points that out. They're they're preaching the Word. They're they're making God's mind known to men. But their character comes into play at the end of verse 5. As ye know what manner of men we wear among you for your sake. What Paul does here is he resurrects in the memory of those that knew him personally, what happened in those early days in the church in the city. He calls them to remember the kind of men that they were that brought them the gospel. Not just that the word came and they delivered it and they could say, Paul came and preached the gospel to us, but he calls them to remember the kind of men that preached the gospel. He wants them to recollect their manner their character now he's going to elaborate a little more of this on this in chapter 2 just for a moment turn over there the second chapter and he develops what he's really getting at at the end of verse 5 in chapter 2 verse 1 we'll read from there for yourselves brethren know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain But even after that, we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Now, just pause there for a moment. He says, "You know how we were treated at Philippi." Were some of them at Philippi? Probably not. I would imagine none of them were there, and very few of them would have known the particular details. But it couldn't be denied. when they arrive into Thessalonica and it's said that these are the men that are turning the world upside down, <laughs> what they're relating and what they're saying is what happened in Philippi and how God had worked in the ministry there. Now, furthermore, there were many stripes laid upon these men. They were taken in and imprisoned in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And you would still see the scars and the marks on them. It would have been quite visible. They would have been able to tell the story we were in Philippi. And we were imprisoned there for the preaching of the gospel. And, and, and they laid many stripes. You can see it here. And we point out the marks that were still in their body. Wounds that were still fresh relatively. And tell them the story of what had happened. And so those that were there from the beginning of the work would know that they came. And they came on the back of persecution. They came facing tremendous opposition to stop preaching. And yet they continue. They were bold, verse 2, in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Look at verse 5. For neither at any time used we flattering words. When we came to you, it wasn't to try and flatter you, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness, We didn't come to try and gain money off you. That wasn't the purpose of our visit. Look at verse 11. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you As a father doth his children. So when we came to you, this is the picture that is brought up in their minds from chapter 2. He's asking them, recall the manner of men that we were when we came to you. And he details some of that manner. They They were bold. And they came in on the back of tremendous persecution that would stop many others. But they will not be stopped. They have a burden, a love for men. So that even when the government comes and says stop doing this, they will continue on because of a mandate from one that is above all governments. And they come and preach the gospel. And you can see they weren't using flattering words. They weren't trying to draw them in with flattering words and language. They preached against their sin. They dealt with their idols. They called them to repentance, to turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, as verse 9 of chapter 1 puts it. And so there's this, this honesty of the kind of men that they were. They weren't after their money. They weren't interested in building up their own little kingdom. In verse 10 even, we didn't read that. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holy and justly and unblamably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. And then, we dealt with you as a father doth his children. Verse 11. As a father doth his children... Implying, of course, the right way fathers deal with their children in love, in tenderness, in care. Sacrificing in order for the betterment and the strengthening of the children. And Paul says, this is the kind of men we were when we came unto you. You remember, recall the manner of men that we were when we came unto you and preached the Gospel. This is our character. Call that to remembrance. Keep that in mind. Now, I thought about perhaps some of his motives for doing that and and why he was really emphasizing this and he, he brings it up at the end of verse 5. There's certainly a, a, a reason in the context there and we'll see it in just a moment. But even what he's leading to when he begins to develop it more in chapter 2, if you go to uh, verse 17 of chapter 2, if you read on down through that chapter, he talks more about the persecution that they face. Verse 17 says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. And there may have been that question, well, why haven't they come back? And why aren't they returning? Or have they just left us? And Paul is saying, look, if you have a question in your mind about why I haven't returned, it's not because I didn't want to. I long to return. I desire to be back there. And I I, I endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Verse 18, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. And we've been hindered in returning. So as perhaps, again, their thinking is, why has He left us? Why has our spiritual Father gone and left us? He's saying, remember the kind of men we were. When we came on to you, we came with no desire for what you have. We didn't come to flatter you. We came on the back of persecution. We faced more persecution in your city. We were driven out and Satan has done everything in his power to prevent us from returning. But our hearts hearts are very much with you. The character of those that preach the gospel is very important. To be able to say to someone, you know what manner of man I was among you for your sake. When you leave a place of employment and you say your parting words to those that you work with, and perhaps someone that you've prayed for many times and sought to evangelize and bring to an understanding of the Gospel, to be able to say to them, look, for the last time, I appeal to you to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ. I may never see you again. I may never have an opportunity like this. I won't be with you 40 hours through the week. I appeal to you to turn. You know what manner of man I have been among you. That for the past 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, I have worked with you. You know what manner of man I have been among you. Now, beloved, that is the kind of testimony we must have if we have any heart for the souls of men. We need to be leaving this kind of a testimony every day, every week, where we work, those that see us, those we have a burden for, those in the providence of God that are in front of us and in some ways our responsibility to reach that as we endeavor to speak words of life to them, and bring the Gospel to them, and invite them to come to church, and all of those things, as we endeavor to do that, we must also be able to say, you know what manner of man I have been. If you cannot say that, you know you're greatly weakening your testimony, your your outreach, your efforts to reach them. They will see through your life What has often surprised me, and I imagine the same is true in Greenville, as it is in Northern Ireland, working in secular work there, I was often surprised that it seemed that those that did not know the Lord had a greater understanding of how the Christian life should be lived than even those that professed to know the Lord. They would hold you to a standard. They would expect you to speak a certain way or not another way and the kind of things you would be interested in or not be interested in. They would be surprised whenever there is a cell phone brought out with something filthy on it that the Christian would want to see it. You want to have a testimony where when they're gathering around pouring over their filth, that they already know you'll not be interested in this. there has to be a manner of our living. ye know what manner of man we wear among you for your sake. You see what he, I mean, it's not that he's living for the glory of men it's not what he's saying we're not we're not doing it for you, simply for you but this it's with an eye that that the world is watching and in many ways, we live our lives as unto them, for their sake, for the sake of their souls. The character then of a preacher is, is very important. One American preacher at the ministered at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. He said this: "While all men, and this really goes to the preacher, by the way, if you're, <laughs> but it applies to all, but it certainly convicted me as as a preacher." He said this. While all men, no matter what their calling, are under the eternal law of God and therefore morally bound to keep the Ten Commandments and to live in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount, yet as clergymen are the only men who voluntarily confess these obligations and give their life to the work of making them real to other men, it follows that more may rightfully be expected of them than from any other tribe of workers." But I was struck by that little phrase: "Give their life to the work of making them real to other men, making the law of God real, making the Sermon on the Mount real, so people actually see that. They see it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. As you go down through the Beatitudes and all the, the the teaching that the Lord brings together in in Mark five or Matthew five and six and seven, when when that is." Lived out that the world see it. And the preacher has given his life to make those real. But we all are, are we not? We all are obligated to live as God has required us. Our lives then are essential to our witness, beloved. They're essential. Certainly for the preacher, of course. Paul is referring to himself here. But we're going to see that it does not end with the preacher. It carries on. And every Christian who desires to be a positive influence must be able to say, "Ye know what manner of man we wear among you." They will not even expect perfection. they won't. But they will expect a likeness, a similarity to the life of Christ and what the Word of God teaches. We therefore must endeavor to have lives that are free from contradictions to the law of God, both in our duty to God and to men. And it's more than just living a clean life. It is. I think we can say, well, I'm I'm kind of stroking my T's and dotting my I's here. I'm getting on okay. But what sometimes is is most remarkable to the world, beloved, is that (laughs) when they learn more about you, they realize that it is Christ that interests you more than anything. And it is Christ that excites you more than anything. And it is Christ that brings more joy to you than anything. When they see that, it, it really brings it home. That this isn't just a person who's living a, a good life because of the context in which they were brought up or for whatever weakness of their frame that they think the Christian life is helps them along the road. It's it's not about that. They see that your ultimate joy is Christ. Your purpose for existing is Christ. That as they see you, it it is seeing Christ in you as all of your joy, all of your hope, all of your desire. They don't see that very often. People who call themselves Christians in Greenville... Probably are all over the place. Someone says Christian, and say, "Oh, so am I." And they're living like the devil, or perhaps even they're living somewhat some kind of respectable life, and their duty toward man. There's nothing wrong with that. They're not committing adultery, they're not lying and stealing and so on. But does their lies evidence? Do their lives evidence the fact that Christ is Lord of all? That there are no other idols in their hearts. That makes a big difference when people see the reality of it. And They could see it with Paul and Silas and the rest of them. I mean, it was evident that it was all out for God. I mean, there's there's no holding back here. Ye know what manner of man we were among you, or oh, may it be able to be said of us all. Not only then the character of the preachers, the conversion of the people. The conversion of the people. Now, we've seen then this essential element. The one who brings the message must have a certain manner of living. That's essential. That's, that's that's important. We have God loving, and men knowing that they're loved of God, that comes through the preaching. That's essential. But then the manner of the men that preach it, that's important. Then you have the conversion of the people. Verse 6. This is another crucial element to the extension of the kingdom. There must be converts. Verse 6, Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the Word and much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. Became. At a certain point in time, which of course, was when Paul and his companions went through there and preached in the synagogue and elsewhere. Now, a few things to note here about the conversion of this people. First, following their conversion was their discipleship. Following their conversion was their discipleship. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. Look at the text. Ye became followers. Our word mimic is drawn from the Greek word here that is used. And so it's obviously been drawn over time to have this idea of following, copying. Copying. We talk about mimicking. It's following the patterns of someone else's behavior. their everything about them. He became followers of us and of the Lord. This is a really crucial part in extending the kingdom of God. That those that are brought to saving faith in Christ, those that become followers, those rather who profess faith are actual followers of us and of the Lord. That this is seen. Now I want you to follow me here because the wisdom of Solomon says that we are to walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Now we don't, we don't live in a day like that at all. We don't live in a day where we try to follow the path of others. We want to be individual. We want to carve our own path. Do what's in your heart. Live according to your own rules. Go wherever you please. Do whatever you please. You're going to make it on your own. But it has no warrant in Scripture at all. Nowhere. The wisdom of Solomon says, walk in the way of good men. Walk in the way of good men. Keep the paths of the righteous. The idea is that good men have gone before you. The righteous have gone before you. You follow in their way. You keep their path. Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of Me. Follow Me. He clarifies in chapter 11 of the same book, Be ye followers of Me, even as I also am of Christ. Follow Me. He says, ye became followers of us and of the Lord. The world would look on and say, well, they couldn't think for themselves. These people were too ignorant to know how to live life. They needed to follow someone because they didn't know any better. The wisdom of the Word of God speaks to the opposite. It tells us actually the wise way is to find the path of others that are good, that are righteous, glorifying to God and follow. Not to be original. Not to be novel. Just follow. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. And no doubt, a favorite of many believers here this morning. Philippians chapter 3. In verse 14, Paul says in Philippians 3, I press toward the mark. For the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press toward... He has a goal in mind. He wants to win Christ. That's it. That's what he said in verse 8. Counts everything done. Whatever might hinder him in living life and living it the way God prescribes, he counts it all done. There's no value, no worth in it. If it does not help me in this goal to win Christ. Winning Christ. So he presses toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's the noun. Mark. I Press toward the mark. It's a, noun, it's a, it's something, it's a goal. He is going towards. Skopos is actually the Greek word. We talk about a scope and a gun. Why do you use a scope? To see a target. To hit the target. It's the same word here. I mark them. I mark them. has that very visual element. He has a mark that he's heading for. The prize of the high calling of God in Christ. He wants to win Christ and receive the honor that is laid up for him and for them that truly serve Christ and only Him. But in verse 17, he says this. Brethren. And you see that. He's drawing them in again, isn't he? Brethren. He's he's went through a whole matter of things. Verse 13, he uses brethren. He uses that word to kind of draw them in. Call them in to listen to Him. And he does the same in verse 17 as he stops talking about himself and begins to drive this application to them. He says, brethren, be followers together of Me. There's the exhortation we've already seen from 1 Corinthians. He says, be followers together of Me and... Mark, there's the verb form of the word. Mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensemble. Mark others. Identify others. Not just Paul, but anyone that you see has this mark of winning Christ, going after Christ, serving Christ. Mark them yourself. Be followers together of Me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensemble. He's encouraging them in continuing to do what they have already done, learning from Paul, following Paul. Basically the same encouragement that He's able to give to those at Thessalonica, but He's saying continue to use other examples as well. Now, this is key in discipleship. You know... Sometimes young believers, they come up and say, will you disciple me? And they want some kind of hands-on work where they're advising. Co- I have no problem with that, of course. That, that has its part. I've had individuals come and you'd nearly think that <clears throat> you're, uh, you're not really a pastor to the, to the flock, you're a pastor to one sheep, and they, they want you to just pay attention to them. and They would have all your time if they could It's very easy to be discipled by the best that are around you. Look at them. See how they live. Be at the meetings they go to and get to know them. It doesn't require hand-holding every single day unless you have serious problems. But it is generally just, well, how do they live the Christian life? Asking them, well, what was it like when you were my age, and you will discover that (laughs) for the most part, it's it's pretty simple. It's boring. It's really boring because it is usually simply putting yourself under the means of grace at every single opportunity. That's 90% of it. Putting yourself under the means of grace at every opportunity. What do I mean? Every time there's an opportunity to learn or be taught or to be fed, you're there. There's preaching on at that time, I'm there. Preaching on later on, I'm there. There's a prayer meeting on, I'm there. And you just go to everything. You go to everything, especially when you're young, when you're being shaped, when you're an apprentice, plying your trade in the Christian life, as it were. You put yourself at every opportunity where you learn. And you will discover the most godly, the most influential, the most encouraging in those places that are not avoiding them. They're there. They're in the prayer meeting. They're praying. They're seeking God. And you will find, I trust also, that they're evangelizing as well. Maybe not as many as they need, there needs to be, but even to find some that are doing a work for God in some form or fashion. Be there. You, you're just there. And yeah. look back and Melanie was testifying to Dr. Overly's class this morning. and we were, You go back and you can't help when you testify or you hear, I hear Melanie testify. Your mind goes back to those days, those, those early days of being a Christian. And you put yourself there and you just, wow, <laughs> how gracious God has been. And you see what was influential in your life. It, it was very simple. Sunday morning, 8 a.m. prayer meeting. I was there. Bible class, morning worship, evening worship. Sometimes there was a meeting after the evening worship, especially for young people. You were there. You could be at church, various, you know, prayer meetings before the service and so on. Maybe five times on a given Lord's day. And then Monday, every other Monday, I had a prayer meeting with a few men. Tuesday, evangelism. Wednesday or Thursday night was Prayer meeting night, Friday night was youth fellowship every friday Saturday, every other Saturday was open air preaching <laughs> I mean your week kind of revolved around sitting under the Word, praying to God or proclaiming the word, and you get discipled, you inevitably inevitably grow it doesn 't take a magic book it doesn 't take some counsel to some insightful Author of the day, who in some way gives you the quick, the fast track way to being a a, a real solid Christian. It's being where God meets with his people at every opportunity, digesting, processing, getting involved, praying. It's it's being there. It is being there. And you grow. You cannot but grow. And it's such the end up. Elders, deacons, missionaries, preachers, generally speaking. Helpers in the church in various ways. They became followers. They, they, they just mimicked the Apostle Paul. They mimicked him. Paul said, it's time to pray. They prayed. Let's go out and preach. They went. We gather for worship. They followed. <laughs> they just followed the pattern. What are we to do, Paul? Follow me. Follow me. This is what you do. And in doing that, you're following the Lord. If Christians are truly living the way they should, inevitably it is following the Lord. Now I say to you, this is not popular today. I know it's not. I've mentioned this several times. I mention it again because it comes to mind when I read this. This is essentially an outworking of obedience to the fifth commandment in the Christian context. I get saved. I am to look for spiritual superiors, elders, people in my life that know it better than I do, ask them questions, be in their presence, pray with them, follow with their counsel. It's pretty simple. What God calls us to do. And the advancement of a Christian depends upon whether or not they obey the fifth commandment in relation to being taught and instructed by those who go on with God. He became followers of us and of the Lord. That's a good thing to do. And of course, they're proving their election. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, verse 4, they prove their election by doing this. You know how someone brings doubt about their election of God? When they do it their own way. I did the Christian life my way. Oh, really? (laughs) It's not very long before you begin to see tremendous flaws. Individualism and uniqueness may be championed today, but listen to me, especially the young people, it is a lie. It will destroy you, individualism and uniqueness. I'm not saying that you don't have a particular unique quality. What I'm saying is the desire to follow your heart and to ignore the clear paths and regulative instruction of the Word of God in relation to how to live the Christian life is folly don't do it be on good terms with those that have been through the trenches been in the trenches in the christian life following their conversion not only was there discipleship but there was also difficulties he became followers of us and of the lord having received the word in much affliction having received the word in much affliction one of the particular ways in which they followed the apostles and the Lord was in their endurance of affliction. And that's really the emphasis of this text. In many ways, it kind of hinges on that, that their, that their following wasn't just in certain aspects of Christian living, but predominantly in this, that in the receiving of the Word, and, I'm, and it's not just in the sense that they received it once and for all at their conversion, but they continually received the Word... In much affliction, with the oppression of the world and the attack of the enemy, they continued to receive the Word of God. Now Jesus warned us of this many places. John chapter 15, familiar to many of you I'm sure. Jesus told us exactly what to expect if you become a Christian. Now if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to pay attention because I wouldn't want you to go away thinking I'm telling you become a Christian because you know, your life will just become wonderful in the sense that uh, everyone will like you and you'll make fast track in your career and everything will just fall into place wonderfully for you. Jesus doesn't quite say that. John 15, verse 18, He says, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated Me before it hated you. So the Thessalonians could look back and read that of the Lord Jesus. They're hating us. The world is hating us the Lord would speak to them, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. You're enduring the affliction as you receive the word. Verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not Him that sent me. They don't know God. So if you know God, the world will hate you. If you don't know God, you'll be accepted by the world. They will love you and appreciate you. So the Lord is giving warning of this. He's saying this is the kind of life that you can expect. Chapter 16, verse 33, He says, "...these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace." In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This is what to expect. (laughs) Not not exactly health, wealth, and prosperity. The Lord says, no, the world will, will hate you. You'll have tribulation and difficulty. Paul also taught in Romans 8, verse 17, that if children, that's children of God, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So the suffering, again, is an integral part of being part of the family. I'm part of the family of God. So they hate Jesus Christ and they hate his followers. If I am heirs, and if I'm an heir and heir of God and joint heir with Jesus Christ, then I will suffer with him. I must expect it. Again, Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul says that I may know him. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. This is part of the Christian life. And this teaching is foundational. When the apostles went about the churches, they didn't hide this from them. Again, Acts 14, you will see this very clearly as they return from their first missionary journey and they go and visit all the different churches trying to help them along. And we read in Acts 14.22, look like, like, Again, they're going back to make sure everyone is going on well with the Lord. And we are told in verse 22 of Acts 14, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And that we must, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. This is the summary of their teaching as they go to encourage the saints on the way back. They come through the the churches, and what's the word? I'll just go and tell them, you know, God's going to do great things through you, and I have a prophecy for you. God has a plan. He's going to break down barriers and and build bridges, and you're going to, you know, these kind of so-called prophetic statements. He goes back and he says, look, you must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. He's basically preparing them, when I turn my back, if you're not already in the furnace of affliction, eventually it will come. Paul was no dull man. He could see the writing on the walls that were eventually, not only are the Jews going to be a a thorn in the side of the believers, but the entire Roman Empire are going to come against believers. They're going to persecute the church. And you must, you must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. It's essential. So, why are you surprised that the world doesn't love you, Christian? Why? Why do you crave its applause? It makes no sense. At all, the Hebrews were being tremendously persecuted as well. When the writer to the Hebrews writes to them. You, you can see it in some of the writings, some of the things that are mentioned. You, you can see the, the pressures on, especially in relating to trying to drive them back to Judaism. There's this external pressure. Look, you know, there's no way Jesus of, of Nazareth can be a, a priest. There's, you know, he's he's not in the he's not in the right tribe, not in the right line. He's not a a Levite. He's of the tribe of Judah. It cannot be that he can be your priest. And there's all these arguments. So basically they're being pushed and pressed upon to to give up. And as Jews had converted to Christianity, one of the ways they suffered was financially. Because they were a very tight-knit community. And to this day it's the case. Jewish communities support one another. They're very good at that. And they were very tight-knit. If there's a Jewish mechanic... No Jew is going to go to a Gentile mechanic. It's not going to happen. He, they will go there. They will get their support. That's the way they function. But as Christians, they get ostracized. They get excluded. And so, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the exhortation is given, let your conversation, or your behavior, let your behavior be without covetousness. Don't start getting covetous. And be content with such things as ye have. For He hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now again, the context is their persecution, go back to Judaism, life will be easier. Certainly they'll be more prosperous financially. But let your behavior be without covetousness. Don't be coveting after this world's goods. Let not that be the reasoning why you leave off following Christ and go back to Judaism. Be content with such things as you have. God says He will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The Lord is my helper. It may be that you take a stand for Christ that sacrifices your furtherment, your furthering in your employment. Happened in the first century. Happens all the time. The Lord is with you. Suffer for Christ's sake. And following their conversion was their delight. We are told that the believer's At Thessalonica, they received the Word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. With joy of the Holy Ghost. Joy in suffering is a mystery of the Christian life. And these believers had known it. The world had turned on them, and yet they had greater joy than ever. What a mystery. And yet Jesus had taught this, had He not? Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are they, which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus says, rejoice. In your persecution, don't just endure it but you can actually enjoy it. It's not that you enjoy the actual persecution, that is those hating you, saying things evil against you, but you can find joy in the persecution because the Lord says you're in good company and there's treasure being laid up for you in heaven, so have an eye that can see and behold that which is awaiting you in glory and be encouraged that His purposes are being fulfilled in your suffering. The apostles experienced this in Acts 4.41 where they are threatened and we are told that they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And this is everywhere in Scripture. Peter, speaking from personal experience in 1 Peter four verse twelve, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice! inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part He is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. (sighs) And yet, how we struggle to suffer as a Christian. That's what these believers had done. They had followed the apostles and the Lord in this specific area. They received the Word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. That as affliction came for following the apostles and the Lord, as it was manifest in their life, and they responded to that, receiving of the Word continually, in the midst of the affliction, that was going on, the oppression and the difficulty that they were facing, they knew the joy of the Holy Ghost. Looking at the lives of some believers, and the misery that seems to be all over them, you'd nearly think to yourself, some persecution would do them good. Good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 5, As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. He commands the joy into the life of the suffering believer. He commands joy. He wants them to be such examples that even when the world is doing its best to crush them, they actually rise up and are even more invincible in their testimony. That's His will. That is His desire. In verse 7, you have a continuity of purpose. I'll not deal with it really. There's not much in it, really to say. But you can see the flow of thought, the continuity of purpose. The apostles have gone into Thessalonica preaching the Gospel, making men know the love of God which is in Christ, and they became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word of much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Your example was us and the Lord. The Lord suffered. We suffer. Now you suffer. And your life is now an example to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. As the churches spring up around the area, as believers are gathered in in the various cities of the region, your testimony is sounding out as they are persecuted, they are being encouraged how you've responded to persecution. The news is being spread how they, they cannot be quenched, and they cannot be discouraged, and they cannot be stopped, and they won't let go, and they continue on to preach, and they attend the synagogues to proclaim Christ, and they... Tell others, their neighbors and their work colleagues and the church continues to be built in spite of the persecution. You have become a pattern of piety for others. Continuity. Every king wants continuity in their kingdom. Not one kingdom in any way shows that continuity like the kingdom of Christ. It doesn't even come close. And often that continuity comes through the difficult days. Faithful when it's hard. Joyful when the world's against you. As we close this morning, beloved, remember your character because it goes right back to that at the end of verse 5. What manner of men You are what manner of woman you are among others. Eyes are watching all the time. they are watching all the time. Your children, your work colleagues, your neighbors. They're watching all the time. Are you steady or unstable? Are you merry or miserable? Do you pray or do you prattle? Do you inspire people or just irritate them? Do you suffer with confidence in God's sovereignty or with complaints against His sovereignty? These things are being seen. People could write what they know about you. And the encouragement, which must not be missed before we close here, is that God desires this of us. He actually desires us to be examples so that others can follow us. He desires that, which means that the grace needed to do it is available. You say, "I can't help who I am, I can't change my ways." What you're really saying is, number one, you can't be bothered. Or number two. God's not interested in changing me in this way. And neither should be true of you. You should want to change, and you should know that God is going to change you. He actually wants every Christian here to be able to be followed. Every last one. Not just the pastor, not just the elders, not just the deacons. Everyone. Everyone. This was his encouragement to Timothy. Timothy, people are going to look at you and say, you're too young to follow. And you're going to be tempted to think, that's true, I'm too young. Timothy, let no man despise your youth. But be thou an example. Be an example. Others will follow. Others will learn. The grace of God can change you. You can be someone worth following. And that is the challenge of this passage This morning, am I someone others can follow? Parents, rubber meets the road at home. Would you want your children to be as you are? I know we all want them to be better, but let's look at it just in the simplicity of what it is. If they did turn out like you, would it at least be somewhat okay? That you wouldn't be some kind of disaster to live with? Are you a pattern to follow? And in your workplace, whoever you are here this morning, if someone was to get saved, could they follow you? Could they learn from you? Would their life be transformed if they just listened to what you had to say and followed the pattern of your life? This is how you extend the kingdom. These are practical elements that extend the kingdom. Not just the gospel itself proclaimed, but the character of the preachers, the conversion of the people, and the continuity of purpose, all of this. It's all just extending the kingdom. That's what happened in this city. And that's what's happened since then and will continue to happen where God's blessing is known. He uses people to make a difference. May God help us to make a difference. Let's bow together in prayer. So Christian, your prayer here this morning at the very least is for a deepening of maturity and also to perhaps begin doing those things that you would want others to do that you are not doing and you would desire them to look a certain way, be a certain kind of a Christian. You need to make sure those very things are in your life. And then know the grace of God is available to you to help. Lord, we do confess our own weakness in this. None of us are what we need to be. And we are called to walk even so as Jesus walked. We pray for greater grace. Deliver us from excuses. Deliver us from saying, well, that's just the way I am. If we are miserable, we pray we might pray for joy. If we are impatient, we pray that we will continue to long for more patience. If we are up and down, we pray for steadiness. Whatever our weakness, help us to know it and pray against it. And may the power of Thy Spirit reform our hearts and change our lives and make us better men and better women that others may follow. May our very lives be an aid in discipling others, whether that's hands-on or just by the way we walk. So bless this congregation with many people worth following. Strengthen all of our hearts, fill us all with the Spirit of God, and use us mightily in these days. For the extension of thy kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.